be with you. Also with you. Today's scripture reading is Luke 16, 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't, cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property for your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace, which has got us here. Thank you for this reckless love, this love that can't be compared really to any other kind of love, this love that is passionate and grace-filled, this love that loved us while we were yet still sinners, this love that doesn't give up on us, this love that forgives freely. Lord, I thank you for this love, and I pray, Father God, that as we look to your word and as we hear this sermon, that we will hear this sermon in the context of your love, that we would receive this invitation to draw near to you, that we would take our gaze off of maybe what's right immediate or what's right in front of us and put it on heaven, that we would seek the things that are above where Christ is. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, when I was a young boy, maybe six or seven years old, my dad would listen to uh, these audio cassette tapes of a man preaching named Jasper Williams. And so he would, had about four tapes that he would listen to. Now, Jasper Williams was a master storyteller. All right. Uh, I went back and listened to some old, old tapes of his a while back. I probably wouldn't recommend his theology, but man, when he told a story, he hooked you in and he delivered the punch. So I remember just driving with my father, listening to these amazing stories with him. 
And so my dad started memorizing them, and I started memorizing them with him. So sometimes we would just be driving, and he'll just start doing his Jasper preaching, and then I would pick up where he left off, and I would memorize it. And it was a way that we bonded. So one day, my father tells me, he comes home, he's like, guess what, Jamal? Jasper Williams is preaching um, here in Chicago, and we're going to go. So I got all excited. I'm like a seven-year-old boy standing in this long line with my father to hear this preacher. And I get in, we have this balcony seating, and we're sitting right there on the ledge overlooking. And a worship service, the worship um, with music ends, and we're waiting on him to take the stage, but he doesn't show up. And everyone stayed around for about an hour and a half waiting for him to get there, and he never came. A long story short, he got caught up um, traveling and wasn't able to make it. And I remember going home kind of sad because I was looking forward to hearing this guy, seeing this guy in person that I grew up listening to and who I loved. Years later, fast forward, a few years ago, I got to go to a preaching conference where he was being honored as a a preacher um, for his preaching legacy. And I got to hear Jasper Williams preach in person. I was like that, a little seven-year-old kid, the front row with my wife in Dallas, hearing him tell stories, and it was amazing. When I think about Jesus and Jesus preaching, um, I often kind of think back to those feelings of hearing Jasper. And I just imagine in that crowd that he was preaching to, that there's kids there who are hanging on to his every word because he is communicating these kingdom truths in ways that no one has heard, and maybe even adults, because Jesus was the master storyteller. And for some of you, when you think of a master storyteller, perhaps you think of a movie, perhaps you think of a particular book, Perhaps you think of a parent who read stories to you at night, and you think like, yes, I get that, a master storyteller. My wife's a master storyteller. Um, Each night she reads stories to my kids, and they're just like excited. And the nights that she skips, man, it's a big deal. I'm like, don't worry, I'm going to read the story to you. They're like, man, no, we want mommy. (laughs) Or if they say yes, I'm reading a story like, can you do the accent like mommy does? No, mommy says it like this. This is how they talk. I'm like, I can't do that. I'm sorry. We'll just have to wait till tomorrow when mommy can do it, right? Because she has kind of mastered the art of telling a good story. And so Jesus, man, when he preached, people were, crowds were coming around, and they would often walk away and say, he is not like the scribes and Pharisees. He's not like our our teachers. When he preaches, he preaches like a man with authority. And he would tell these little stories and make little statements called parables. Parables are these stories or statements that's often small, but they pack a big kingdom punch. They get to something, they come alongside what Jesus has been teaching, and they help to illustrate it by giving like a a real life example or a wise saying. And that's what's happening here in Luke 16. Chapter 15, we see that Jesus has just told three parables. One about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and one about a lost son. And up until this point, he's been talking very generally to whoever's present, to the crowd, letting them know, uh, uh, giving them an insight into the kingdom. But in chapter 16, he switches, and from here on out in the Gospel of Luke, his primary audience is his disciples. His disciples are those who are committed to his kingdom as learners. Right. So he's about to tell another parable. He's about to tell another story. 
And at the end of the day, he's teaching his his disciples about what it means to be a kingdom citizen, what it means to follow him. But in chapter 14, we see that the Pharisees are there and they're listening to him tell stories. And here's what they conclude at the end of the story that he tells. It says the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. So they're going to hear this sermon. They know that Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter of being a disciple, being a kingdom citizen. And the Bible says they sneered. Now, I don't know all of what that sneering looks like. Maybe it's them rolling their eyes, right? Like, can you imagine some grown men like cutting their eyes? Or maybe it's like them sneering, kind of like, oh, I don't know what it looks like. But they don't like what Jesus is saying. I don't know. But so Jesus is teaching, and they're like barking at him. They're complaining about his teaching. And then it says this. You are the ones, Jesus directly speaks to them. You are the ones. These are religious people. This is the heroes of Israel. Yourselves in the eyes of, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. Listen to this. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So these are Israel's leaders who Jesus is taking it to. And essentially, he's saying, you guys are not living as kingdom citizens because your heart is not where it should be. You love money. We know throughout the New Testament that the love of money constantly, is we're told, is the root to all evil. Having money, being wealthy is not evil, but loving it, making it your priority, making it your ultimate goal. Finding your comfort, finding your identity, allowing that to be the reason you wake up and go to sleep, scheming to get more and more so that you can benefit yourself is evil. Jesus calls it detestable. Now, let's push rewind and let's go back to the story and let's see how Jesus is going to confront them through this parable. So Jesus here tells a story about a rich man. This rich man has a manager. Let's just name the manager. We'll name him Greg. All right? Sorry, all the Gregs here. You know, it's just the luck of the draw. You're a wicked manager today. All right? And so Greg is like wasting his his boss's possessions. He's not uh, taking care of his boss's business like he's supposed to. And in verse 2, we read that somebody calls him out for it. And his boss goes to Greg and he says, listen, do an audit, give an account of your management, um, and then you're done. Like you no longer have a job. And this probably lies on a boss's part. He fires him, but he says you can keep working until you do an audit. So Greg feels the weight of what's about to happen, and he comes up with a plan. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's a a wealthy man. He's like, listen, I'm more of a white collar worker, not blue collar. I don't dig. I don't work with my hands and I'm not the type to beg. Verse four, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their house. So hear this. He's planning for his future. It's like I'm about to lose my job. Um, I don't have any money to provide for myself. Perhaps my family doesn't have any money. So he devises this plan. What's his plan? 
His plan is to go back to his master, uh, master's uh, uh, business partners, and to cut a deal with them that is such a big deal where they will be his friends. So if he ends up homeless for a time, he can go back to them and live with them, perhaps even work with them. So he's trying to make friends by cutting what really is an illegal deal with these people. So the first person he goes up to, we're just going to call him Tony. And Tony owns a local olive garden. And we read these words. <laughs> Verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. That's a lot of olive oil. Uh, and the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. So off rip, he cuts a, a huge deal, almost cuts it uh, pretty much in, in half. And, uh, and, and he, he, he's befriending this guy, becoming his friend, uh, so that he can have him home. Verse 7, then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. So we'll just call him Richard. So Greg goes to Richard, does the same thing. Richard owns the local Krispy Kreme. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. So again, he cuts down his bill about 20%. This is his plan. I'm going to make friends, secure a home for myself by giving a deal to these people. Then we see the meaning of the parable explained in verses 8 and 9. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. He acted shrewdly. And so this has brought a lot of, uh, a lot of issues in interpreting uh, this passage. People throughout the ages have spent a lot of ink, uh, some reading too much into, I think, this parable uh, than they ought to. And they see this and they say, wow, he commended a dishonest manager. And you may be thinking, like, how is this, how is this good and what is Jesus trying to teach? And here's where I believe Jesus is getting at. What Jesus is, is saying here, listen, this was a dishonest man who acted resourcefully, who acted in some ways wisely in order to benefit himself. It's almost like an athlete who's playing against his arch nemesis, his rival, and they do something sneaky in a game, and the referee doesn't catch it, and he ends up scoring, and you run back down court like, wow, you got me. That was a good move. Like, that was true. That was, that was resourceful. Like, wow. And I think that's, what, that's what's happening here. The master commends Greg as he thinks about it, he's like, wow, you schemed, you acted in a way that benefited yourself. In other words, you got it. Like, family, you got it, right? And so it goes on, Jesus goes on to say this. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth. And what does he mean when he says worldly wealth? Another translation is untrue wealth, false wealth. What is false wealth? Everything that we accumulate on this side of heaven is false wealth. Why? Because when you die, you can't take it with you. Right? In eternity, it, it really does not have value for you. But he's saying, use this worldly wealth. Use what you have to do what? To gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, when all of this is gone, when all of your wealth is taken, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In other words, when you get to heaven, these friends that you have, that have become your friends, these people that have become your friends, they will be there to welcome you home into heaven. So what is Jesus saying? 
How do we interpret this? Eugene Peterson and his uh, kind of commentary on the Bible, he says these words as he's putting the Bible to his own words. He says here, this is what he writes. This is how he surmises it. Now, here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. And I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. And I think that is getting at the heart and thrust of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, as a kingdom citizen, I need you to be kingdom savvy. I'm calling you as my disciple, as my people, when I leave, as I've given you the kingdom, as I've given you uh, uh, this to, to look after and to take over. I don't want you to be apathetic. I don't want you to be lazy. I don't want you to use your wealth for your benefit in your kingdom. But rather, I am calling you to use your resources, your gifts, everything that I've given you for my benefit to win friends, to win people who don't know me to me. So that one day when you're in heaven, they can welcome you and congratulate you and to say thank you. Thank you for living with the kingdom sad. Thank you for living to build my kingdom and not your kingdom. Thank you because it changed. God used that to change my direction and to give me life, abundant life through Jesus Christ. So there's a couple questions. For us, even as we look at this, is, is one is are we are we living with the end in mind? Throughout the parables, as Jesus talks about stewardship, there's a sense of accountability, there's a sense of, of management and stewardship, and there's this, this picture of one day us standing as Christians before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and giving an account of how we manage God's resources. Are you a good manager? Are you a faithful manager of what God has done? One of the ways we can look at and tell if we are is by what we scheme for, what we sacrifice for, what we are constantly being savvy for. This passage calls us to do three things. First, I think it challenges us in our walk with Christ to constantly to reach out to leverage our resources to reach the world for Christ. Matthew 28, 18 through 19, Acts chapter 1 through 8, we have this commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, share the gospel with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And as you know, uh, to do so, to take something to the ends of the earth, it requires resources. It requires money. It requires God's kingdom citizens, his church, stewarding their money well. So I want to just put a mirror up to us today, this morning as a church and just to look at us as Sojourn Midtown, um, to look at as, as a whole, as we break down our giving, um, to, to, to just kind of see where we are as a church. According to our, 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 our stats, 53% of Midtown, we found, uh, provides about 96% of our giving. So 53% of the people that we have on record to, to give and to regularly give make up uh, over 96% of our giving, which means that there's about 47% of uh, those who regularly come or who've been uh, seen to give multiple times here at our church 
that give up, that make up about 4% of our giving. 428 people uh, this past year gave less than $1,000 in 2017. Next slide. Thank you. 413 people gave less than $200 in 2017. To put that into perspective, if you purchase a Starbucks vanilla latte every week, and that's a very particular drink because that's what I like. <laughs> Y'all crazy. Uh, you would have spent more money on coffee than on the king. So if once a week you got a, a vanilla latte from Starbucks or from uh, Quills or from Center Goss, wherever you like to go, uh, you would have given uh, more uh, than 200, less than, than, than what you gave for Starbucks. Next slide. And so as we talk about being a kingdom citizen, as we talk about moving God's mission forward, I want to see that the people of God, we have a collective responsibility together to put our monies together, to put our gifts together, to put our resources together to reach the lost, lost world for Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, we see this, this tithing as a, as a biblical law. That as Jews, they were expected to give 10% of what they received back to the Lord. As New Testament Christians, um, we don't uh, operate under the law of tithe. But I do think that it's a great principle for us to, to, to take in. So for the average Jew, they gave 10% back to the Lord in order for Israel to fulfill God's commands and his mission. Now, that wasn't all that they gave. That was a minimum of giving. When you add up all the giving that was required... Um, and the offerings that were required, they actually gave up about 23% of their income back to the Lord. And that's the way that the Lord was going to, to allow his glory to fulfill the earth, right? So that principle of 10%, I think, is a great place for Christians to, to start. And now when we look at our church, we see that based on the median income of those in Jefferson County, if, if that's what our median is as a church, the 25% gave less than 2% last year. And then 25% gave less than 0.5%. So 30% of our, our regular attenders and giving, uh, our givers give, give less than 2%, some 0.5%. And this isn't to discourage you. This isn't to, uh, uh, to, to guilt you into giving. But this is me as your pastor saying to you that one of the ways in which we can tell where our heart is is by looking at our finances. And Jesus throughout the gospel constantly talks about money because it is an easy place and an easy way to tell what we value. And so I want to encourage you here, if you um, don't give regularly, I want to encourage you to start giving regularly. If you're not a regular giver, you just give sporadically, um, see these New Testament commands that Jesus gives to the church to give generously and freely and often. See that as an opportunity for you to discipline yourself, to set a budget with your own spending, and to give an account. And I want to encourage you this year to say, in 2018, I'm going to give 1% or 3%. You can do that monthly, you can do that weekly, however your finances work. If you give regularly, I want to encourage you um, to, to buckle down and, and to, to, to say, hey, you know what? I give regularly, but I'm going to try to hit this year 5% to 7%. And if you're a, a, one of those who are tithing and giving 10%, I want to encourage you to, to do more, to give sacrificially. 
um, to, to encourage yourself to, to be even more of a, of a greater steward. So here in this passage, we see that Jesus is telling his disciples that, that people in the world, they're shrewd, they're, they're wise, they're resourceful in dealing with their own kind. They're, they're constantly trying to work angles to build their kingdom and to secure their safety. And he, and he says, quite blank, uh, frankly, in this passage, that the people of light, that my people should be the same way, only not seeking to build their own kingdom, but seeking to build my kingdom. And as the people of God, we're going to look at how we do that. And one of the ways we do that is not just by reaching outward, but it's by looking inward. It's by looking inward. And that's what Jesus does here in this text. In verse number 10, he says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little is also dishonest with much. So Jesus is about to peel back the heart here. And he's getting to some of our excuses. And some of our excuses for not being a faithful steward and not faithfully giving is because we say, well, I haven't reached my goals and I don't make a lot of money. And for many of us in this room, that is, um, I haven't reached the American dream. Or I am not living and I'm not able to take a vacations like my brother, my sister, or my cousin, or my parents. Right? And we say to ourselves that when I get more, I'll give more. And when I reach my goals, then I'll be able to contribute to the kingdom. And Jesus is getting to, to our psyche. He's getting to a way that most of us operate. And he says, yo, that's just a lie. In essence, he says, the person who's sloppy with $40 and who isn't intentional with $40, they won't be intentional with $400. The person who doesn't prioritize my kingdom and giving uh, through the local church and also giving to the poor now, giving to their neighbor who's who's hurting and disenfranchised, the person who's not looking out for other people saying, how can I be a blessing with what I have for other people? With, and they have a little, when they have a lot, that won't matter. They won't do it. Right? And that's as he's saying, like, why would, why would God entrust you with more if you're not faithful with the little? Like, why would I entrust somebody, like, with my kids and a lot of them babysit if when I go to their house, their dogs look like they're starving to death and they're not waking, taking care of them? Like, Pastor Jamal, I'll keep your kids. I'm like, yo, your dog is barely holding on. Like, this is an argument from lesser to greater. This is common sense. I'm like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm straight. I'm cool. I got it. We, we're going to find somebody else, right? And God is saying the same thing. Like, why, why would I entrust you with more, with more, with more gifts, with more opportunities, and you squander the ones that I've given? And this is a kingdom pr principle. The guy saying, I'm not entrusting with more responsibility if you don't take serious the gifts and the resources I've given you. In fact, look at verse 10 and verse 11. Whoever can be trusted with very little, can be trusted with very much, that's an integrity issue. That's a character issue. Honestly, that's a trust issue. Right? If, if we're always afraid and never given to God's kingdom, we're always got our eye on our 401k and our, our retirement. Like that's, that's an integrity issue. That's, that maybe it's because we are valuing the things of this kingdom and the things of this life uh, more than the kingdom to come. And maybe our identity is wrapped up in what other people think about us. And we care more about what other people think about us and how other people congratulate us and what's celebrated in this world than what God celebrates. Like this, this world is fleeting. 
why he calls it worldly wealth. This, everything we accumulate on this side of heaven, when we die, will be someone's, someone else's or it will accumulate rust. You cannot take any of this with you in heaven. In man's life, the Bible says it's fleeting. Maybe 70, 75 years. It's blessed if you live to be 90 years old. But then, for 2 billion, 1 trillion, more than that years, we will live in light of how we spent this. And God, by his grace, has saved us. He has transferred us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he tells us to lay up your treasures in heaven. Lay up your treasures where rust and moth does not destroy. Invest in the coming kingdom where the streets are paved with gold, where there is no more crime, there is no more death. Live your life with the kingdom savvy so that the neighbors that you know, the co-workers that you work with, the family members that you know are there with you to enjoy, not the streets that's paved with gold ultimately, but to enjoy me and my goodness and my beauty and my creativity and my love. But in the church, man, we have a very secular mindset. We, we have a very shallow mindset. Now, we're trying to keep up with the Joneses or the Kardashians, whoever it is, I don't know who. We're trying to keep up with Jigga, somebody, rather than Jesus. I am. We care way too much about other people's perception rather than God's perception. And Jesus is saying here quite clearly, and a clear indictment, this is his words, verse 11, so if you have not been trustworthy by handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true wealth, true riches? What's true wealth and true riches? This is things that don't fade. This is things that rust and moth cannot destroy. And as we said last week, one of the, the ways and, and fruits uh, that we can evaluate to see if God has truly gripped our heart and if we are actively loving God is by looking at what we do with the gifts and resources that he has given us. Verse 12. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property? Of God? So the, the last thing here, so Jesus uh, tells us, hey, reach outward, reach inward, Evaluate your heart. But finally, he points us up. He says, reach up. Reach up. Look, look up. In verse 11, he, uh, in verse 12, 13, I'm sorry, he says, no one can have two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So he uses a powerful illustration here that would have connected uh, with these uh, first century disciples as he talks about uh, servanthood or uh, those who are slaves, he says, listen, a, a person who is a, a servant to a master cannot have two masters. They will either love one master and, and hate the other, but they cannot work for two because a master in that context had, had complete uh, uh, control over that person's time as well as over who they were and their treasure. He says, it's impossible for a slave to be committed wholeheartedly to both. And they would say, wow. He said, in the same way, it's impossible for you to be committed to my kingdom and your kingdom. It's impossible for you to be committed to true riches, which is the things of God, and worldly riches in building your own kingdom of comfort 
He says, your heart only lies one place. And he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So let's take it back to the Pharisees. Remember, they used this word, love. Like they loved money. They loved the accumulation of stuff. Now, they were religious. Like they were in the synagogues on Saturday. Like they were church. You know, they were shouting during the sermon, right? They were singing hard during the songs. Like they fasted most of, most of the time. Like they were killing it. They were, they were crushing it in the eyes of other people, but their heart was in the wrong place. At the end of the day, what controlled them was money. Was their appearance. That's where their heart is. That's where their heart is. Same way Jesus sent disciples, like, where's your desire? Where's your heart? Like, if you love me, Jesus said, you will, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will sacrifice for me. You will give to me. You will be intentional. Why? Love is a verb. Love takes intentionality. Love takes intentionality. You can't say, like, I love my wife, and every time I give her a gift, it's really for me. Like, on Christmas, she's opening it up. She's like, oh, Wow, PlayStation 360. I don't like video games. Like, I know, but I want you to share my joy. That's for me. That's for me. Will you be happy for me? Your gift is seeing me happy and build my own comment, right? In the same way, like, we can't say we love Jesus and we never make sacrifices for the things that he cares most about. Like, we're never scheming to care for the least of these. Like we're never looking at a, a young couple in our church that we know is, is working hard and has limited resources and we, we are in a season in our life where we have resources and we never like scheme and see like, let's see how we can bless a faithful couple in our community group. Like we're never opening our home for our, our neighbors to see where they are if they have a relationship with Jesus and spending money to, to have good food and good fellowship in order to build a bridge. And why do we build bridges? We build bridges to send something across. And if we're never using our resources to build bridges, to send the gospel across to them, to give us more time with them, to show them the love of Christ, not to manipulate them, not to be like these weird, strange people who are trying to bait and switch, but because we genuinely love them, because they're created in the image of God, and we want them to know the joy that we've experienced, then at some point we have to ask ourselves, I do a heart check. Where's my heart? I say I love God, but everything I do with the resources he gives me is for my own benefit. Where's my heart? Like I sacrifice to make sure I can get that vanilla latte every morning. But when it comes to the church, like I'm giving as little as possible because God knows my heart. Yeah, that's right. He does know your heart. And he knows mine too. And I'm just going to be honest. Like if we keep it 100, like many times, like our heart is, is looking just like the Pharisees. It has this religious overtone and this, this, this declaration of loving God. But when we check our pocketbooks and what we spend our time on, like Pinterest is up here and like kingdom mindedness is like way down here. And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus is not condemning the disciples. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He's talking to his disciples and he's teaching them. The reason they're there is because they want to learn. He is teaching them a kingdom principle. 
And he is calling them back to himself and back to a God who loved them. And how will they know that God loves them? They will know that God loves them because God gave. They will know God loved them because God is about to sacrifice his life for them. They will know that God loves them because God is about to take his wrath upon himself. The Father is going to pour out his wrath upon himself so that we can know him and be in relationship with him. We know that God loves us because God gave his life for us. And how do we know if we love God? We know one of the tests points of knowing if we love God is as we look back on our life of walking with God, we see sacrifice. We see commitment. We see intentionality. And we see that because we see his beauty. And we believe that he is more, that he is better, that he is greater, that he is crazy about us, that his love is reckless and that he has saved the people for himself, and that he's coming back soon. You know, sometimes we get, we get, we get weird in our, like, reformed Christian circles. We do. Like, everything is prosperity gospel, right? We can look at a clear teaching in scripture, and, oh, brother, don't say that. That's like, about to be like Creflo Dollar. Like, that's what they teach, like. But here's something I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to say. I'm going to step out on limb because it's throughout the scripture. There is a biblical principle. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Those who sow generously will reap generously. Same principle we see here. Those who have been trusted with few things and who are faithful will be given much. It's a biblical, biblical principle. We know ultimately this will come in heaven. But I also know and believe from experience that God is faithful to provide for me when I trust him, steward wisely, and make sacrifices for him. Old folk used to say, you can't outgive God. And I'm calling you all to trust in Jesus, to pursue him in intimate relationship. And to give to him knowing that you can't outgive. You can't outgive. And every Sunday we celebrate the generosity of God by taking communion together. We see that God worked his angels for us. That God wisely worked. Jesus was wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. And he was crucified for us. He was humiliated in front of the very people that he created. He was broken and chastised and beaten because he loved us. Because he loved us. And we celebrate his love and we celebrate his grace and, and we celebrate what he's done by taking communion. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way he took the cup, said, this cup represents my blood shed for you. Christian, in the same way, here at Sojourn Every Week, we celebrate the breaking of bread and we celebrate the drinking of this juice as it points us to our Savior. And we take time to reflect and to take this meal and we remind ourselves that good stewardship doesn't happen by me like garnering the strength to do it and doing it. Good stewardship happens through deep reflection 
on what Christ has done for us. Good stewardship happens as we come to our knees and as we stand before the Lord and say, Lord, you empower me. You empower me through your spirit. You help me to see what Christ has done. Help me to live out of that. Good stewardship happens as we set our eyes on the ultimate steward, who is Jesus. And every week we do that by taking a piece of bread, dipping it in wine or juice, the wine that's marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And if you're not a Christian today, we want to ask you not to partake in this meal. This meal is for Christians. This meal is for people who have placed their faith in God, who is the ultimate storyteller, and God who is the one who ultimately has has set in motion this, this story of the world. We read in the Bible that God created the world, and he created it, and the Bible says it was good. He created mankind, and he put mankind in this world, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, they were poor stewards of what God gave. Rather than seek the creator, they, they sought for their own creature comforts. They sought to live a life that re revolved around them and pleased them, and they sinned against God. And the Bible teaches us the sin separates us from God and that the wages of sin is death. And through their disobedience, death entered into the world. But the Bible says that God loved the world so much that he did not allow that to be the end of the story, but rather he worked a plan that he had before the foundation of the earth. And that plan was to send his son into the world to live the life that we could not live, to live a life of perfect obedience, and to die the death that every single human being deserves to die. To take upon himself the sins of those who place their faith and trust in him. So that they can be reconciled to God and be brought into relationship with him. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that those who place their faith and trust in Jesus will one day eat with him in the kingdom of heaven. And one day share a meal with him like we're about to share Place your faith in that story and that grand narrative. Run to Jesus. Repent. Have a change of mind about how you're living your life. Live for his kingdom. Live to love this king. Let's pray.